Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Could you imagine if I lose my whole life? What am I going to do? I'm not going to feel so good. Maybe I'll have to leave the country. I don't know. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, I'll talk to the chair of the Michigan Democratic Party, Lavora Barnes, about how the race looks in one of the most important battleground states with just 16 days left to vote. Before that... We'll talk about the MAGA meltdown happening in Trump world, how the president can still win, and the latest garbage attack on Joe Biden's family. But first, love it. How is the show? Great love it or leave it. Talk to Hari Kondabalu, W. Kamau Bell, who are hilarious. And then I interviewed Dave Weigel from The Washington Post about what he's seeing on the campaign trail. It was a good time. Good time. Dave, by all. Cool. Dave Weigel, man. Hardest working uh, road reporter in, in uh, politics. Just always out there. Yeah, well, well it's also... He's like one of the best people about being on the ground, and it's been harder to be on the ground, Yeah, which sucks. Uh, One more quick note. If you haven't already, this is the week to make a plan to vote. Do not wait. If you can, take advantage of in-person early voting. If you'd like to vote by mail, get your ballot and then figure out exactly when and where you'll drop it off. There are plenty of options to vote early and safely. If you need any help at all, we've got you covered. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash plan to make your plan, find your voting location, and vote as soon as possible. And if you've already made a plan or if you've already voted, uh, your work isn't done. you got to go help at least five other people in your life make a plan to vote who don't already have one. That's that's what I'm asking you guys to do, because I'm sure a lot of you are just like, I- I've already voted. Don't talk to me. There's other people that, you know, who have just sitting there on their ballots. You know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, other people. You, yeah. OK, that's right. All right. Let's get to the news with 16 days left to vote. Here are some of the headlines the president is getting. The Daily Beast. Trump is taking down names as Republicans begin jumping ship on his, quote, totally off the rails campaign. Axios, Trump's advisors brace for loss, point fingers. 
The New York Times reports that aides are quietly conceding just how dire Trump's political predicament appears to be. The Washington Post reports that the mood inside the Trump administration has been, quote, grim. CNN reports that former Trump chief of staff John Kelly has told friends that Trump is, quote, the most flawed person he's ever known. And here is some leaked audio of Republican Senator Ben Sass talking about Trump on a phone call with his constituents. The way he kisses dictators' butts. I mean, the way he um, ignores that the Uyghurs are in literal concentration camps in Xinjiang right now. He hasn't lifted a, a finger on behalf of the Hong Kongers. I mean, he and I have a very different foreign policy. It isn't just that he fails to lead our allies. It's that we, the United States now regularly sells out our allies under his leadership. The way he treats women and spends like a, a drunken sailor, the ways I criticize President Obama for that kind of spending, I've criticized President Trump for as well. He mocks um, evangelicals behind closed doors. His, his family has treated the presidency like a business opportunity. He's flirted with white supremacists. I, I don't think the way he's led through COVID has been reasonable or responsible um, or right. And I'm worried that if President Trump loses, as looks likely, um, that he's going to take the Senate down with him. I'm now looking at the possibility of a, of a Republican bloodbath in the Senate. The debate is not going to be, you know, Ben's asked, why were you so mean to Donald Trump? It's going to be, what the heck were any of us thinking um, that selling a TV-obsessed, narcissistic individual to the American people was a good idea? It is not a good idea. That was Ben Sass talking about the candidate he's going to vote for for president, Donald Trump. <laughs> um, I want to. So before we get to the shit show of uh, of Trump's campaign right now, Tommy, do you have a reaction to our two most recent Republican profiles in Courage, uh, Ben Sass and John Kelly? So frustrating. So frustrating. I mean, look, I guess better late than never. It's not the worst thing to have Ben Sass say all of this in October before the election. But man, that wasn't a list of news stories. You know, Ben Sass could have been speaking out about the Uyghurs in concentration camps for years. But, you know, we'll set that aside. Like, I hate these stories for so many reasons. We read all the same stuff in 2016 about how Trump was angling to buy a, a TV network and the staff knew they were going to lose. And so, like, here we are again. No one should be celebrating on the one yard line. John Kelly. Let's just pause there. The most flawed person you've ever known. Okay, that's great. That's lovely. No one said you had to work for him. No one said you had to uh, rip kids away from their families at the border. You chose to take that job. There's no honor in that kind of service. Here's an idea for something you could do. A bunch of newspapers reported that Trump questioned whether the service made by members of the U.S. military was worth it while standing next to you at your own son's grave. If you think he's the worst person on the planet... Why don't you speak up about whether that's true or not? You know, you're the only one who knows for sure and you can clarify. So, again, like I guess there's some political benefit to us for having this stuff out there. I'm also grateful to the the lower level staffers who joined like Republican voters against Trump and are making these on the record sustained, potentially career ending efforts to defeat him. But God, I'm so sick of these like leaked or half assed comments. Right. Or like John Kelly or Jim Mattis who say, well, we don't want to get involved in politics. Well, when you decided to take off the uniform and be Secretary of Defense or the White House Chief of Staff, the most political job in all of the U.S. government, you cross that line, right? So, like, you don't get to duck these questions now. It drives me nuts. Love it. What do you think? And and do you find either of these comments useful in some way? <laughs> well, sure, it's useful. It's all useful. Uh, you know, Ben Sass uh, was quite muted when he thought he might face a primary uh, and he thought he might uh, want some of those Trump voters. So no, no profiling courage there. Yeah, I would divide... Uh, Republicans who have spoken out against Trump into two categories um, for the country and for the record. Like for the country, 
are people who have taken great personal risks to speak out. Uh, they have filmed ads. They have endorsed Joe Biden. They have been honest. They put their faces on camera. They've done it repeatedly. They've done it because they believe it's what's in the best interest of the country. I have no doubt that Ben Sass believes what he says in that audio. I don't think he is just doing it uh, uh, because he's trying to earn plaudits. But I do think he and John Kelly are in some sense saying it for the record. When we look back on this moment, they are on the record having issued these criticisms. But but Mattis, Kelly, this is America in 2020. Put your fucking faces on camera. That's what matters. It matters. It matters when you say it to a to an Atlantic reporter so that it spreads around DC or say it on a background call or say it to friends or say it to Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic and then go hide from people trying to confirm it. It matters. It matters. So, you know, I appreciate the people doing it for the country. I'm glad when people do it for the record because I do think it's of some use to have Trump tweeting at uh, a serious conservative and uh, lambasting Ben Sass on Twitter. I don't think that should be his message. It's a good distraction for us, but um, we should appreciate that distinction. Yeah, <laughs> my view is I don't really give a shit about Ben Sass, what he has to say, who he really is. Like my mind in the last 16 days is just like, pure political animal what's going to help us win yeah and as soon as i heard i had read this story about sass and i knew it was leaked but i didn't know someone had the full audio that they were playing until i <laughs> was prepping for the pod i'm like why ha why isn't that in an ad yeah, that should be on air let, let's put let's i want ben sass's comments in front of republican and republican leaning independent voters because you know you look at some of these stories about undecided voters right now i know they exist they're out there and you know they all say the same thing they they sort of like either Donald Trump's policies or think that as president, he hasn't done that bad of a job, but they hate him. They're disgusted by him. Right. And I do think that playing like Ben Sass's comments for some of these voters may give them the permission structure to say, oh, here's a Republican who may agree with me on a lot of policies, but he hates Donald Trump, too. So maybe I can maybe I can jump ship. He's obviously a coward. <laughs> Everything you said is right. Love it. Like he's, a, no. he's a complete coward. But I'm just uh, saying, like, let's get this stuff in an ad. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I, look, I, I'm I'm in the same I'm in the same boat. Obviously, all I care about is what helps us win. Of course, of course. But like when it comes to Ben Sass, I do find it just a little bit interesting about what's going to happen to republicanism in the long haul. Because Ben Sass is a good example of someone who like had a reputation of being serious, of being more intellectually honest than most, of having genuinely insightful things to say that were conservative, uh, but like worthy of discussion. And what the lesson of Trump is, you can't be halfway to Trump and walk away with your dignity. You just can't. Because he has spent all of that capital uh, these past four years and emerges a shell of the kind of politician he thought he would be. Uh, let's talk about who's blaming who within the Trump campaign. The Washington Post reports that staffers and advisors are trying to decide whether a potential loss, quote, should be attributed to an undisciplined message, the coronavirus pandemic, or campaign spending and choices made by former campaign manager Brad Parscale. Uh, what do you think, Tommy? Who's at fault here? I mean, I can't, I can't believe that reporters put this stuff you, in print. Like, I, yes, Brad Parscale burned through a ton of money too quickly. They raised and spent a billion dollars. And that means that Trump hasn't been running ads in places like Iowa since July. And now that the race is competitive, he had to visit there last week. They had to go back up on air. There's a competitive Senate race. It's a mess. But Trump hired Brad Parscale. Right. And so, yes, like flying to California a couple weeks before the election, really bad. But the, the fault for winning or losing <laughs> relies with with Trump and, and Trump alone. There's no amount of campaign ads or strategy decisions that can make up for their disastrous handling of the coronavirus. And as we were recording, someone sent me a tweet 
from Donald Trump, where he's again criticizing Dr. Fauci for making bad decisions about masks. And then he ends it with also bad arm. Trump is making fun of Dr. Fauci for throwing out the first pitch at that baseball game and doing it badly right now. This happened like as of a minute ago. Uh, So, look, that's the problem. Like, that's the reason they're losing, Uh, you know, like not because of Brad Parscale. He certainly didn't help. But the real problem is mocking Fauci on an all staff call, as we he also did today, empowering people like Scott Atlas that are basically like pandemic truthers and doing a disastrous job. Right. Like, that's your problem. In fairness to Trump, of course, he's making fun of Fauci's arm. Fauci's going to use that arm to vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> and like, that's something to keep in mind. <laughs> I, just, I just love that. Like, everyone's like, you know, let's go through the spreadsheets to see where Brad spent too much money or something like that. Meanwhile, we're looking at headlines, like you said, about the Fauci thing, which has gotten really out of control in the last 24, 48 hours. On a call with reporters today, Trump said Dr. Fauci is a, quote, disaster who is a, quote, bomb every time he's on TV. He called other health officials idiots. He said Americans don't care about the pandemic anymore and just think whatever. And then last night, there's an NBC News headline. Trump mocks Biden for trusting scientists about COVID, warns that he'll listen to the scientists if elected, which Joe Biden just like used as an endorsement. <laughs> like there's Donald Trump that Donald Trump's out there being like, don't you like Joe Biden? He's going to listen to the scientists if you do. Like, yeah, no shit. Yeah. I mean, look, we really are in this sort of like decadent decline, last days of court. Trump is like what's the guy whispering in Trump's ear is this crank radiologist named Scott Atlas. It's the only person feeding him the kind of information he wants. The consensus is obviously where we all know it is on mass and testing and all the rest. I mean, the bigger problem is the cases are exploding right now. Like we, we are back up to really serious, scary numbers of new coronavirus cases. And everyone is predicting that it's going to get worse as it gets colder. And Trump is attacking Dr. Fauci in campaign calls. And right now, one of the holdups on stimulus is the fact that the White House is refusing to go along with expanded testing. Why? Because Trump doesn't want to do it. And Scott Atlas is telling him it's a bad idea to test people and find out if they're asymptomatic so they can't spread it to other people. We were just talking about that. Like, there's there's two things. I, I would love Joe Biden to bring up both of these at the debate. Two, like, re- pretty easy to understand points. Um, there was that story that uh, the Trump administration was going to mail masks to every single American, and then Trump didn't want them to because he didn't believe in masks. And then this point, the point you just made, love it, that now we know um, that there was a plan to do more expanded testing, and Scott Atlas and Donald Trump were just like, no, we don't want to do more testing. So they didn't want to hand out masks, and they didn't want to do more testing. <laughs> like, pretty easy to understand how badly he fucked up the pandemic. Um, now, he did, in a sign of how the money issues for the campaign you know, uh, might be problematic. Uh, Trump did spend Sunday with, you know, uh, 17 days to the election here in Orange County, here in California, down in Orange County, raising money because his campaign has about half the cash on hand that Biden does. Um, and that's because of pretty weak fundraising and the crazy spending. Tommy, how like real and problematic do you think the Trump campaign's money issues are in the home stretch? So I don't think any amount of paid advertising is going to really overwhelm the, the broader news cycle. But like there are key states where Trump is getting outspent by Biden and his allies. So the Times had a big piece on spending over the weekend. And if you look at states like Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, 
Biden is basically uh, has a two to one advantage in those states. And Biden's also spending in places like Ohio, Iowa, Nebraska. They're spending a little in Georgia. He even went up with like a six million dollar buy in Texas. So it has allowed Biden to to spread the field. It gives him a lot more paths to 270. Um, it also I think like, yes, the value of ads can be overstated. But I think like when you are on the air in a market and your opponent is not or is in an, up, on the air like half as much as you are, that actually can move the needle. So I doubt any of this is determinative. But, you know, look, clearly it's built awareness uh, of who Biden is, his his plans, his record. It's helped his favorables go up. Hopefully it can help drown out some of this last minute crap. But yeah, like a, a, a candidate coming off the campaign trail to fly to California on what it was, it October 18th or whatever it was yesterday, like that is an absolute failure of strategy, utter failure. Yeah. Um, so we obviously love a good Trump and disarray story, but in each of these pieces, uh, there are also Trump officials saying that they still see multiple paths to victory, even if they are narrow. Uh, this morning, Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien told reporters, quote, he feels better about our pathway to victory than we have at any point in the campaign. And it's not just the Trump campaign saying that over the weekend, several outlets published excerpts from a memo written by Biden campaign manager Jen O'Malley Dillon, where she wrote the following. The reality is that this is a far closer race than some of the punditry we're seeing on Twitter and on TV would suggest. In the key battleground states where this election will be decided, we remain neck and neck with Donald Trump. Yikes. Uh, Love it. First, the Trump campaign still sees a few net paths to a narrow electoral victory. What are they? I mean, well, so they are looking at paths where they think if they can win Florida, Pennsylvania and Arizona, they don't need Michigan uh, and they can win maybe one vote in Maine, right? There's like a bunch of different paths where they don't think they need Florida to win. If they have Florida, things get very easy for them, right? They can win Florida. They can win North Carolina. They don't need Pennsylvania. They don't need Michigan, but they need Arizona. They're looking at paths where if they lose Florida and they lose Michigan, they can still win with uh, a vote in Maine, Wisconsin, Arizona, but then they need Nevada, right? Like there's like a few different routes for them. But uh, one of the things that is striking about it is if you just go and sort of look at the map, right? Like, you move Florida and Pennsylvania over, right? You can imagine them going together. And then all of a sudden, we're, it's 2016 and our stomachs are in, our, in a knot and we're panicked and we need to win everything that's left, right? Like the lesson of 2016 is like, every state doesn't run elections independently. They will move together. And we don't know exactly what surprises there will be on election night, but there will be surprises. Like there will be surprises. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Now, you have to take all this with a grain of salt, of course, because, you know, campaigns that are behind lie and make it sound like things are better than they are. I thought what was interesting sort of digging into what Stepien's different paths there is that um, they don't feel very good about Wisconsin. <laughs> Almost all of yeah. their paths to victory have them losing Wisconsin. Um, so they feel they don't feel great about that. They do feel very good about Florida. They think that Florida is easy. At least that's what they say. And then it seems like Pennsylvania, Arizona, and maybe Michigan and Nevada yeah. are all four states where they feel... Um, they feel like the the race is tight, but they might be able to pull it out. And then, of course, I should say they feel he at least in that story said he felt good about North Carolina. But there's an ABC News story this morning that said uh, Trump officials are suddenly not feeling good about North Carolina. But who the fuck knows? Um, Tommy, what what advantages does the Trump campaign still have right now? Like, what are some of the reasons uh, they think they can still pull this off? Yeah, well, Trump still dominates the news cycle like no one we've ever really seen. Uh, it has been quite the net negative for him lately. But that still is a lot of power, uh, and, it, and it worries me. His ability to get the press to re- report on basically anything he wants is a, a huge advantage. 
we don't really know the impact of potential voter suppression or how voter tendencies might have changed because of the the pandemic. Um, we can't really understand, I don't think, how much all this disinformation and these conspiracy theories that are flying around is impacting voters. Like, I'm not suggesting there's some big foreign intel operation, but you are seeing sort of QAnon or QAnon adjacent stuff coming up anecdotally. It's reaching millions of people on Facebook. I don't think we really know how that cuts. We know that uh, Republican voter registration has increased in some states. Maybe there's this big surge of like white men who are going to vote that we're not seeing in polls right now. We know that Trump is pretending the pandemic's not happening and doing big rallies and having his field team do in-person canvassing. Maybe that will pay dividends. Maybe undecideds will break to him. Maybe the polling is off, right? So like those are all the major caveats we see out there. I do think like the thing people need to know is like 90% of Trump's past victory involve him winning Florida. So that's a big piece of this for them. And for Biden, his easiest path is basically win the Hillary states, win Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and he's at 278 electoral votes and this thing is over. So there's just a lot more optionality for Biden now. I would just add two things to what Tommy, the list that Tommy just mentioned. You know, we talked about spending. Sheldon Adelson just decided to dump $75 million into the race. Uh, And two, you know, Fox News is an in-kind contribution every single night for three hours a night worth billions of dollars in free advertising. They're, push, they're pushing out, uh, um, you know, the latest sort of shit from Giuliani. They will be helping him all the way down the home stretch. And it's actually, I think, something that was also true in 2016 that maybe we're forgetting, which is uh, there was, an, there was a, a Hillary advantage in the closing days of that race, too. But Trump was able to overcome it because of the kind of shadow campaign other organizations were running around the kind of um, uh, chaotic, fa- floundering operation that he was running. And we're seeing the same thing now. Yeah, I think the fear from the beginning has been that the Trump campaign would register a a whole bunch of non-college educated white voters, specifically, as you noted, Tommy, men um, in some of these swing states um, that are Trumpy kind of voters, but didn't vote in 16. So and, and look, in some of the registration data, we see that they succeeded in registering some number of new Republicans. Um, And then the other scary thing is there's a pool of registered non-college educated white voters who just simply sat out in 2016 and 2018, but have been registered to vote and that they would turn out those and they do have this very big ground game. And, you know, um, I think Priorities USA, like a month ago, they did a presentation that's the big Democratic super PAC. And they said, if you just increased, uh, you know, sort of white working class uh, turnout in some of these swing states by 4% and you decreased turnout among voters of color, by 4% in some of these swing states, suddenly it's a razor's edge race and and Trump could easily win it. And I think that's what they're looking at. I mean, do you think, Tommy, do you think Jen's warning about the race being close is what the Biden campaign is seeing in their polling? Or do you think she wrote that memo to avoid complacency? I I know for a fact that it was, it was part messaging and they are warning against complacency. And I think that is smart, but there, there's some reality to it, right? Like there have been polls that have Biden up like eight points in North Carolina. The, the Biden campaign does not think that those are real. They think Biden is closer to like one or two points up in North Carolina. There was a poll, a Quinnipiac poll, a good poll that had Biden up 11 points in Florida. The Biden campaign thinks that is nonsense. The the race is like three or four points. So their message is take nothing for granted, keep donating, keep volunteering, like run through the tape. But we all have to remember that 
We've never voted in a pandemic before, one, and margins of error exist for a reason. And so if it's a plus or minus 4% margin of error, that margin applies to both numbers, right? So you could see an eight-point swing in a poll with a plus or minus four MOE. And that's just something to remember. Like polls are not determinative. They're snapshots in time. They're imperfect. The averages that 538 and all these sites are doing is better. But again, like we've never voted in a pandemic. We just don't know. So we got to work hard. I mean, if I, if I told you boys that uh, there was a one in 10 shot, I put a bomb in your car, right. you'd be fucking terrified <laughs> right. to start right. it. Unless I was Donald Trump and then I'd say it's fake news, there's no bomb, it's fine. Then you, you said Eric you just started. Bombs. <laughs> he just said Eric just started. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I get, look, you know, Jen said the race isn't up double digits. They don't have it like that. Uh, you know, if you look at the state polls right now, they sort of add up to a seven or eight point national lead, not quite the 10, 11 point lead that you see in some of the averages. So, you know, it could be all... Uh, that that could be what what she means by that, but it, it it's close in a lot of these swing states, and partly it's close because again, as I was just saying, like we don't know what the turnout's going to be. That polls are only as accurate as the type of electorate that ends up turning out, and that is just as much art as it is science sometimes figuring that out. So, um, and I do I, the other worry I have is like rejected ballots, right? All these people are voting by mail, and by all these people, I mean mostly Democrats, right? The the the, the disparity between. Democrats voting by mail and Republicans voting in person is huge. And so if there are a bunch of rejected ballots, it's going to hurt Democrats more. So that is the other X factor here that's sort of unnerving. One other just, you know, things that are happening that you might not think about, right? Well, when the electorate shifts redder as we get closer and closer to Election Day, the kind of shit Trump's pulling that's designed to motivate his base will matter more for them than it would in the opposite for us, right? Like if if they're going to be pushing right. misinformation for the next two weeks really, really hard to build up to Election Day, like that could work. That could manifest in a bunch of Trump people showing up who aren't telling postals right now that they're planning to vote. Or a bunch of people who might be voting for Joe Biden deciding to stay home because right. they're so turned off by both candidates, which is the other thing that I really worry about. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. You got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. So any of the Trump campaign's paths to victory require destroying Joe Biden's very favorable image with voters. Um, and now that uh, Sleepy Joe, Senile Joe, Antifa Joe, all that hasn't worked. Um, they're back to where they started, which is Joe Biden criminal mastermind. Um, you will all recall that Donald Trump was impeached because he extorted the Ukrainian government to launch a sham investigation into Joe Biden and his family. Well, last week, 
uh, Rudy Giuliani and federally indicted Steve Bannon gave Rupert Murdoch's New York Post a bunch of emails they say they got from a Trump-loving computer repair shop owner in Delaware who says he took them off a laptop that Hunter Biden brought in for repair in April of 2019. The repair shop owner also reportedly gave the laptop to the FBI, which is reportedly investigating whether the emails are linked to a foreign intelligence operation, which might make sense because Rudy has been known to work with at least one Russian agent to dig up dirt on the Bidens. <laughs> Can we just also just please note, because it's, it's my favorite part of the story, that the uh, repair shop owner who apparently ID'd Hunter Biden said on the record that he's legally blind. So just let me... Oh, I forgot. Just that. let me know how that identification was made. There's something else about a sticker, but again... Worth noting. I want to get to why, like, all of this seems suspect, but love it. What are the various allegations that Bannon and Rudy are trying to push here based on the contents of this laptop? And again, just a <laughs> warning for everyone, we have to go down. Every once in a while, we have to do this. We have to go deep down a rabbit hole of Fox News universe here and, and right-wing universe to really unpack all of this. <laughs> I mean, look, one of the key allegations from uh, this weekend is that Joe Biden is a supportive father who loves his son, even as he's <laughs> struggling to overcome addiction. Like, that's one of the hardest hitting pieces of this. That's one look, of the big like, ones. It's actually hard to say exactly what they're alleging. Does is Was there some money exchange, some corrupt deal between Burisma and Hunter and Joe Biden? Like, it's very similar to Benghazi in the sense that the core facts are quite well known they, and they were, have been investigated, right? Joe Biden has been found to have had no wrongdoing by two Republican investigations in Congress. And the most important facts, like the key part of this story, the part that they have to elide to make it sound like there's corruption is Hunter Biden was paid by a company in Ukraine. Joe Biden, a vice president, did the opposite of influence peddling. He did the opposite of what that company wanted. He did what was right, what the U.S. government wanted, and it hurt that company. It's the opposite of Hunter's influence having any effect, right? That's the facts, right? Burisma would have wanted something to happen. Joe Biden said, no, we're doing the opposite of that. That's it. And everything else is an effort to find something that sounds bad, that looks bad, that 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 sounds like what corruption should be, that sound like what influence peddling is, but they don't have that. So they spread these sort of like misbegotten emails and what have you to try to create some sort of illusion of malfeasance. Tommy, what are some of the many reasons the entire story is almost certainly bullshit? <laughs> well, I mean, like to love its point, I mean, the underlying allegations that somehow Joe Biden used his position in the government to help Burisma and help his son has been thoroughly investigated by Republican-led congressional committees and found to be untrue. The latest kind of twist of the knife here is a suggestion based on a wild interpretation of an email that maybe Joe Biden himself got money or a kickback or some sort from one of these deals. But the problem with that is that Joe Biden has released like a decade, many more maybe, uh, worth of tax returns. So if Joe Biden got some big influx of money from Burisma, it would show up in those tax returns or he has committed massive tax fraud, right? So there's just a million parts of this underlying allegation that seem completely false. Now, some of the people who, who want to make this bad for Biden are trying to get into a game of like, are these emails real or not? And the Biden campaign doesn't want to go down that path because all of a sudden you have to confirm or deny everything Rudy Giuliani says. And I think that's nutty. But like, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of all of this reporting. 
Yeah, the, the, the supposed bombshell in New York Post story is um, that maybe Hunter introduced Joe Biden at one point to one of his uh, someone he was working with at this Ukrainian company. That's it. Like and the Biden, and the Biden people that. were like, well, that's not on the official the, pre- the vice president's official schedule. So it wouldn't have been any kind of serious meeting. And they're like, well, could he have possibly like, you know, just said hi to him once? And they're like, well, we don't know. He's met like, you know, like so. But even if that's true, like so Joe Biden says hi to you, a Ukrainian executive in the worst case. <laughs> right? Like that's the bombshell. That's why you have to come back to like there's going to be a lot of noise. They rely on the fact that like things that are like investigation shaped are covered like investigations, like the core allegation is false, right? Like yeah. whatever kind of shit that gets turned up about this, we know what happened at the time. They're public, it's public information. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a few other things too. Like, you know, Tommy mentioned the Republican-led Senate committees that couldn't find, it, find anything, even though Ron Johnson, dipshit from Wisconsin, admitted that the investigations were purely political to hurt Joe Biden in the election, and they still couldn't find anything. (laughs) Um, Rudy Giuliani admitted he went to the New York Post, admitted this because he didn't think any other outlet would take it, or if they did, they might fact check it. Multiple other outlets reported that the New York Post reporter who wrote the story refused to put his byline on it because he didn't think it was credible. And this morning we learned that Fox News passed on the story because they didn't think it was credible, though it didn't stop all of their fucking opinion journalists and the primetime lineup from talking about it nonstop for the last week. But the news section of Fox said, no, this story is too crazy for us. Yeah. Rupert Murdoch basically decided that he wanted to make this a thing. And so he did. Uh, the, the, the lead author on the story has no other stories written for the New York Post and until recently was a producer for Sean Hannity. And her Instagram apparently <laughs> is just full of pictures of her with like MAGA people. So, you know, that's kind of the level of uh, sophistication we're dealing with. A lot of, a lot of credibility. I mean, let's talk about how the media has handled this in general. You know, Twitter initially banned all links to the New York Post story, saying it violates their rules about distributing private personal information and their rules against distributing hacked material. They then backtracked to say they'll only remove such content if it's distributed directly by hackers or their accomplices. Facebook said it reduced the visibility of the story until it could be fact-checked. No non-MAGA news outlet could confirm any of the story. Most of them reported it rather skeptically, although a CBS reporter who asked Biden about the New York Post story got a fairly annoyed response from the former vice president. President. Um, Love it. How do you think the press and social media platforms have handled this? I was surprised by what Twitter did. I just was genuinely surprised by it. It's a strange thing. Like I, this is, I think, is a problem for two weeks and four days from now. But like there is no coherence at all to Facebook or Twitter's decision making around what it considers misinformation and what it doesn't. I get that it's a really hard question, but like banning it and then unbanning it and basically giving the right wing this like talking point that they're being kind of manhandled by Twitter, I think is like a strange thing to do. Um, I think what I saw is like a mix of people kind of trying to figure out how to cover this appropriately, right? Like I think that there's, you know, there is obviously an important story here. I think the question is, what do you think that story is? Is it the story that Rudy Giuliani is trying to say, or is it the story about what why Rudy Giuliani is doing this and how he's doing it? And as part of that, an examination of what this material is. To me, like that should be the core of this story. Like, what is the um, chain of custody of this information? Why is Rudy Giuliani doing this? Who is he partnered with? What does it tell us about the way right-wing misinformation and disinformation and Russian intelligence operations really work? What does it say when you have Trump's handpick intelligence chief on television doing his dirty work as if he's a member of the campaign, right? There's like, that to me is the bigger story uh, than whatever they're trying to pump out of the New York Post. 
Tommy, how do you like as a having been a a press communication staffer on a lot of campaigns? Like, there's always a balance when stories like these come out where you want to knock them down, but then you also don't want to give them too much oxygen. Um, because then everyone's talking about it. Like, how do you think the Biden campaign should handle this? I mean, I think at a staff level, they're doing the right thing. Like, they can't get into this game where every piece of misinformation or everything that Rudy Giuliani says gets thrown to them to confirm or deny, right? Like, you see a lot of people on Twitter right now saying, uh, you know, Democrats are suggesting that this is Russian disinformation, but the campaign refuses to confirm or deny whether these emails are real. I just don't think that's a fair standard. You can't say that Rudy Giuliani can work with some Ukrainian goober who's been sanctioned by the Trump administration and called a Russian asset and then like leave it to the Biden people to figure out what to do with that. I think the debate is a different story, right? Because like associated with the substantive critique of Hunter Biden and Burisma, and we just talked through all the ways that is garbage, there is a real human element here, which is the New York Post releasing private personal information, not about a candidate, but about his son and about his grandkids. And so like, uh, like, it's just so gross to see text messages from a father to his son who is struggling with addiction get splashed out for all the world to see. It is so gross to see text messages from Hunter Biden to his daughter treated like there there should be public information because it somehow makes the rest of this garbage the New York Post is peddling more credible. So I would want Biden to sort of focus on that human element and how gross it was and sort of repeat what he said at the debate, which is like, my son struggled with addiction. He's in recovery. I love him. I respect him for it. What Rudy Giuliani and your surrogates are saying is disgusting. It's offensive to anyone who has someone in their life with a substance abuse problem. And like, I'm not going to make this about families, but I can tell you what I will do as president is I'm not going to use the office that I hold to steer taxpayer dollars into the family business the way you have. I'm not going to install an incompetent schmuck like Jared Kushner in my White House because he's my son-in-law and then put him in charge of the pandemic response. I'd want to go a little bit on offense with this, but in a way that is not like fully down in the dirt. You know, I, you know, I would say uh, your children have used the presidency as a business opportunity. And those aren't my words. That's what Republican Senator Ben Sass said yeah. on a call last week. Yeah, <laughs> I would put it and put it in Ben Sass's mouth. I agree. Biden should go on offense. I was like, I, I find myself just really sad, like having to read some of those texts and, and and feeling really bad for Hunter and the family and and the grandkids and everyone who've gone through um, who've gone through a family member having addiction. And like, it's not only morally repugnant, by the way. Like, I don't think that fucking works. I don't, like. There is so how many families in this country have struggled with a family member who's had an addiction uh, issue? Like millions and millions, not just Democrats, Trump voters, right? Like that that cuts across all demographics, all party lines. Like going out there and gleefully mocking a family's addiction, I don't, I just don't think it's a I don't think it's a great political play. Well, it's also you know in those messages, you see like I saw like. You know, Eric Trump and Don Don Jr. sort of gleefully tweeting this, right? And all we have seen, if they're true, are signs of a good father showing an incredible yeah. amount of love for his family. That's what they managed to reveal to try to kind of to smear the Biden family. And it is a testament to just how kind of how low this operation that these people cannot see that this is not an attack. It's not bad for Joe Biden. It's just a human, it's a human story. And they're so inside of this evil Trump orbit 
It has broken them, and they think that this is appropriate. That's all. Um, all right. We have time for a few questions before the interview. Questions. Stacey smith Clayman via Facebook asks, talk about Texas and our early voting turnout so far. What does it mean? Let's, we, we, can, we can back up and talk, start, sort of talk about early voting, l- reading early voting tea leaves in general. Anyone want to take a stab at that? It's exciting. Don't do it. <laughs> like, I'm glad to see the turnout. It's really exciting to see people showing up. If we waited four years for this moment, let it motivate you. Let it, let it, let it excite you. Let it inspire you. Don't take any, any aspect of it for granted whatsoever. Why is reading the tea leaves on early voting turnout um, not the most accurate way to find out whether we're ahead or not? Well, first of all, it's, this is true in any election. We know based on polling that because of the asymmetric information around the pandemic and voting itself, people who are voting for Biden are tending to vote earlier by mail and people who are going to vote for Trump are planning to do it in person. It's a huge, huge disparity. So even in a normal year, you can't read a lot into it. But now it's all it tells us is that Democrats are voting, but we would know that anyway. Yeah, the other issue, too, is um, you can't really determine who's ahead by party registration when one of the reasons that Biden has had a big polling lead, if the polling lead is true, is that he is pulling a lot of Republicans and independents, especially independents, um, in addition to just Democrats. So if you just see early voting, that's like D, this number, R, this number, non, you know, uh, independent or no party, this number. It's really hard to find out who's ahead then. And then, like you said, love it. It's it's apples and oranges in a year where we've never had this many people vote by mail. So it's it's good to see enthusiasm, but that's it. It's also the opposite, right? There there are counties where Trump won by twenty points, but there's a Democratic. Uh, registration advantage because there are a lot of former Democrats who voted for Trump in 2016 and probably will again. Yeah. Alex Medrano via Facebook. Is there any way we can get back into the Iran nuclear deal if Biden is elected? How long will it take for the U.S. to regain its reputation on the world stage after all the damage Trump has done in terms of foreign policy? World O. I mean, the the reputation question, is it going to be a generational problem? So good luck with that, Joe. Yeah, he can get right back in the Iran nuclear deal tomorrow. uh, And then hopefully renegotiate a, a stronger follow-on agreement that extends it. I'm hoping that that's one of the first things that that Biden does if he wins, because right now we should be clear that we are much less safe. Uh, Iran is enriching uranium at levels that they were uh, forbidden from doing under the Iran nuclear deal. And on top of that, the Trump administration is putting more and more sanctions on them and just destroying their economy, destroying their ability to get in like medical supplies in the middle of a pandemic. It is really a bloodthirsty, vindictive, horrible policy that is being implemented on the Iranian regime. And I'm like, I'm obviously no fan of the leadership in that country, but you have a bunch of people trying to live through a pandemic and they're just crushing them. Uh, and it is deeply fucked up. Uh, all right, last question. Julie Finn Bakey via Facebook asks, at what point is it too late, not effective to donate to candidates? I'm thinking specifically of Senate candidates. Can my money still help Doug Jones or Gary Peters? Are donations useful right up to election day? Or is there a cutoff beforehand where it becomes too late to place ads or send out mail? You take that one. Sure. I think, it, I mean, maybe not on election day, but I think in these in these last couple of weeks, your money is very effective, right? Like campaigns place last minute buys all the time. Uh, they can go up on air really fast. 
Uh, there's also an addition to advertising. That's not just where the money's all spent. Uh, there's also a field operation. There's ballot chase operations to make sure that you go find voters who haven't returned their ballot yet. Like there are so many things campaigns can spend money on uh, towards the end. And if they are hurting for cash or they are being outraised or outspent by their opponent, then yes, that money helps. Your money tends to help most in close races and especially some of the down ballot races where it doesn't take a lot of money to suddenly have a cash advantage, right? Like that's why we've been raising money in our fuck gerrymandering fund for a lot of state legislative races. Um, we've been trying to do things like, you know, on, on Thursday's pod, we told you about that poll in Doug Jones's race in Alabama. Doug Jones raised, how much was it, Tommy, over the weekend? Uh, they didn't, that wasn't an external number. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, you know, so we we tried to raise a bunch of money for um, Doug Jones's race over the last couple of days. Can That's we keep in that Tommy knows Jones. the internal number? Because I think it's cool. Well, that you know, they they reached out to us because they were looking for some help raising online. And I, I do think it speaks to John's broader point, which is like Doug Jones is someone who is uh, in a really tight race in a really hard state, and they think that they have a little if they can get a little more money in to go up on air and, and do more in these closing weeks that they might be able to win. So we'll see. Yeah. So maybe maybe when it comes down to like the day before the election, maybe you don't donate. But up until then, keep donating because uh, it could help a lot. Um, all right. When we come back, uh, we'll have my interview with Lavora Barnes, who is the chairwoman of the Michigan Democratic Party. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. I'm now joined by Lavora Barnes, chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. Thanks for coming on the pod. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's cool to be here. Good to have you. Um, So I want to start with Donald Trump's trip to Michigan on Saturday, where he told Governor Whitmer to end a stay-at-home order that hasn't existed since June. Uh, And then when the crowd chanted, lock her up, he said, lock them all up. Um, Obviously, that is dangerous and horrific. How do you think voters react to that sort of thing, especially after their governor was the target of a domestic terror plot? Here's the thing that the voters here in Michigan know that this governor stepped up and took care of us in a way that many other governors did not in their states and certainly in a way that Donald Trump did not for this nation. And they're grateful to her for that. So to hear the president of the United States and his his supporters suggest that somehow she needed to be stopped or should be locked up, I think is a little bit scary to our voters. I think they understand the danger that our governor is in. There's a terror plot out there. Um, Who knows what other plots are out there? We cannot have a president who incites that sort of violence and hatred. It needs to stop. It's dangerous. It puts her in danger. It puts all of us in danger. And the fact that he doesn't care about that should frighten the voters, frankly. Uh, Let's talk about the race. 2016 was a bad year for Michigan Democrats. Uh, 2018 was a great year for Michigan Democrats. Uh, Can you talk about what changed between those two elections and what lessons from 2018 specifically you guys have applied to the 2020 race? 
So I'll start with the lesson from 2016, which was that we as a state party um, were, were not prepared with a ground game. Um, we had not been organizing in a grassroots way as a state party leading up to 2016. And what we did when we woke up after that 26 election, 2016 election was to build that ground game. We started a project we called Project 83, which is for the 83 counties here in Michigan, um, so that we would have organizing activity in every county of the state starting in 2017 and not stopping. And we have stopped all the way through till 2020. So obviously that paid dividends for us in 2018 and we continued that work on the ground all the way through so that right up until COVID turned us into a virtual campaign. Um, we were on the doors having conversations with voters and, and visiting their neighborhoods all the time, not just showing up right at the end of the election to ask people for a vote, but having good conversations with voters about issues that matter to them and what how Democrats would respond to those issues and what's important about participating in the election and supporting Democrats. It also helps that in 2018, we ran a slate of badass women um, who worked hard, who ran all over the state, made sure they were in every part of the state, having gone with those conversations with voters everywhere. Um, I call it a, now a, a full Whitmer when you win all of the counties. Um, and <laughs> And it makes a big difference to actually show up everywhere and have those those conversations. And we're doing that again in 2020. Well, so obviously, you know, Governor Whitmer won by such a large margin that she earned a huge share of voters who actually cast their ballot for Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah. Um, what share of those sort of Trump Whitmer voters do you think that Joe Biden needs to win the state uh, in, a, in, you know, this year? So as, as you know, I think as everybody knows, we, we, we lost in 2016 by 10,704 votes, um, the tightest margin in the country. So what, what I tell everybody is that those 10,704 votes are in your neighborhood, 2.2 votes per precinct. Um, so our, our goal is to go find those 2.2 votes plus more. Um, so I want the, the full Whitmer Trump voter um, to come out and vote for, for Joe Biden and then some. And I think that we can get there. This feels good here on the ground here in Michigan. One of, uh, one of the big issues in 2016 was a steep drop in turnout among black voters. Um, what has the party and the Biden campaign been doing since then to energize communities of color? Great question. So one of the first things we did was open and keep open offices in those cities where people of color um, are the majority. So Detroit, an office in Detroit that stays open all the time, that has staff that's sort of become a community center. Um, and it's been open even during COVID. People go in there masked up and socially distanced. It's where they can go get a sign or whatever they want and volunteer. But those offices stay open because we need to continue to have conversations in those communities all the time. We need to stop being the candidates who show up to go to church in October and then disappear until it's time to get elected again and show up to go to church in October. Right. Um, so we've been in these communities having conversations with these voters, supporting these communities around the issues that are important to them, whether it be water shutoffs or redlining or just clean water in their homes like in Flint um, all the time. We can't just show up for the vote. We have to be there for the community. And that's what we've been doing. Michigan was hit pretty hard by COVID, especially early in the pandemic. How do you think that experience has shaped people's political views in the state? Obviously, I'm sure there's a, a huge number of people in Michigan who, you know, have a, a special appreciation for how scary and serious this virus is. And of course, we also saw at the beginning, you know, there were anti-lockdown rallies at the Capitol. So how, how, have, how has the pandemic sort of shaped the politics of the state? The first thing is that the, the, this governor's response to the pandemic has provided for us 
a stark contrast between how Trump has handled this virus and how we've handled it here in Michigan. Um, and I think that makes it easy for us to have that conversation about the need for change in Washington is to just point to what's happened here in Michigan and what's different. Number two, I think that the governor and the lieutenant governor have recognized how hard this virus hit the black community and have stepped up to make sure that they began to put in place healthcare beyond just COVID, but healthcare resources for the communities that were hit so hard by this virus, something that the federal government has not done. Um, and that's something that we can remind folks over and over again, that when you have Democrats in leadership, folks who care in leadership can really make a difference in people's lives. And then finally, I think the callous disregard for life that's been shown over and over again by the Trump administration really hits home here in Michigan, where I don't know a single soul who doesn't know someone who has had or someone who has passed away from COVID. Wow. Um, it is a pain part of our lives and the fact that this administration just doesn't seem to care makes us angry and makes us all want to vote. And how have um, registration efforts been going with the pandemic? Do, do you still feel good about where you guys ended up? So registration's hard because um, so much of what we would do to register voters would be in person um, and close. So, so we we stopped registering, frankly, um, for a while as, as COVID uh, came in. But what we have in place is a terrific Secretary of State who recognized that the voter registration efforts that we all, as a family, not just the Democrats, would um, undertake were stopped or slowed by COVID. And she has done some terrific work making it possible for folks, for folks to register to vote online and has been pushing hard to get folks to register. So she just announced that she's got over 100,000 new registrants that came through programs that she built out and that she's been pushing to get folks registered. So yes, we feel good, but luckily we can register folks right up to and on election day and we're not stopping because um, I know that there are young folks out there who turned 18. My son is one of them um, who, who needed to get registered. We walked him into the clerk's office and got him registered. And we need to make sure that we're doing that all over the state with folks who need to get themselves registered, who haven't been into the Secretary of State's office because of COVID and therefore haven't gotten that registration taken care of. Really important point. If you live in Michigan, if you know someone who lives in Michigan, you can still register. Um, uh, One million Michiganders have already voted. Uh, what do we know about who's already voted? Are you seeing any signs in the numbers that give you hope? Or is it just far too hard to tell uh, what's going on with the shift in mail-in voting this year? So because we don't register by party here in Michigan, it is really hard to do what some states are doing and point to an advantage in terms of um, who has voted so far. Um, but, but I will tell you this, when you look at the cities um, and the places where folks are voting, um, those are places where lots of good Democrats live. Um, we feel good about where we are, about the work we've done to talk to voters about the importance of voting early and voting safely. You know, we're telling folks to get those votes cast, get them in, take them to a drop box, go to your clerk's office, and, and people are responding and people are voting. Um, and our, our goal is to get as many of our votes banked early just to make sure that folks are voting safely and don't have to stand in line um, in a mask for hours on election day. Um, and I feel good about where we are and where there's numbers are. And I think we're at 1.5 million voters. Okay. Now. Nice. Mm -hmm. Very good. I like that. Um, so Joe Biden's consistently polling uh, fairly strongly in Michigan, uh, but incumbent Democratic Senator Gary Peters is running behind him in a lot of polls. What do you think accounts for this gap? And, and what do you see as sort of the work that Gary Peters has to do from now until Election Day to, uh, to pull this out? 
Yeah, Gary Peters is a terrific candidate and he's doing a great job. He is being hit hard by the Republicans who see him as a target, I think, in part because of the Trump margin here in 2016. I think in part because they have a candidate that they really enjoy talking about and um, are, are, are supportive of and who apparently supports the president 2000% and who's got some really wealthy um, donors behind him, including the DeVos family. All of this comes together to mean that that candidate is well-funded and is working um, to continue to raise money, probably spends more time out of state raising money than he does in state talking to voters here in Michigan. Um, and, and you know that that sort of onslaught from a candidate with all kinds of money, a party with all kinds of money, um, and and then third party groups that want to attack Senator Peters um, makes for a lot of work for Senator Peters to, to, to get this done. But he's doing the work. He's broken fundraising records himself every, every, every quarter. I'm surprised again by Senator Peters' numbers. He's doing a terrific job. Um, I, I feel confident that, that Senator Peters will win. You know, we always run, you know, those of us further down the ticket always run a little bit behind the top of the ticket because that's just what happens. Right. Um, but I do think that um, Senator Peters will indeed be fine. He's doing some terrific work. I've had people, I don't know if you know, Magic Johnson was in town. I heard, I heard. And um, that's a, Senator that's a good guess. There, and I have not seen Senator Peters have so much fun at an event <laughs> as the videos I've seen. He's having a good time out there on the campaign trail, but now he's got to go back to Washington and do some voting. So that's right. Um, we'll, that's we'll right. pick up the mantle for him and make sure his, his words are being heard. So a Michigan court recently ruled that ballots that arrive after Election Day can't be counted. Uh, is the Michigan Democratic Party going to challenge that ruling? Uh, is there time to do this without confusing voters? Right. I'm not sure that there's time to do that. We And what I'm trying really hard to do is not confuse the voters on the messaging here. So we've been very clear, even when that, when that judge did say that we could count those ballots up until 14 days, we were still very clear, get the ballots in early, get the ballots in fast, because we knew that this court ruling was in jeopardy. Um, we, we need to be just focused on making sure folks get voted, get those votes in. Um, I think that we should challenge this later. Um, be beyond this election day, because elections keep coming everywhere. Right. And, and, and we will want to um, continue to have this discussion about how important it is, because, you know, the postmark, I think, should be enough um, if you've postmarked yourself. But but here in Michigan, you've got to get it in um, by 8 p.m. on Election Day. And we're just going to continue to share that message with our voters and make sure they get those ballots in. Make too a plan. many people, I think uh, it's a big plan, but too many people's ballots don't get counted because they yeah. get late. I think there were about 6,500 folks in the August primary here in Michigan whose ballots arrived too late to be counted. And we can't afford that. No, that's what we, we just told everyone on the pod today. Make a plan this yes. week. Get the ballots in. Yes. Um, yes. So the Trump last question, the Trump campaign is telling reporters that at least one of their paths to victory includes winning Michigan again. Um, Cong Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who worried that Trump would win last time, says she's still worried. That's usually what she does. What specifically are the things about the race that are keeping you up at night? I know you want to say everything, <laughs> but, it is everything. But, 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 but what's keeping you yeah. up at night? So here, here's the thing that 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 worries me, and I think I think your listeners won't be surprised when I say this. I don't trust them to follow the rules or follow the law. Yeah. So it's the things that they will do when they see that they are losing or have lost um, that I don't know about or I can't dream about because my brain won't let me think that way because I'm a good, honest person. Right. <laughs> um, it's those things that worry me, the unknowns out there, the fact that we have very little um, understanding of what's in their minds in terms of voter suppression, in terms of um, trying to block people from voting, trying to block us from counting the votes, 
all of those things. So what we've built a magnificent team of lawyers, probably the biggest team of lawyers I've ever had around an election day operation, almost like ready for anything. And really they can make up some scenarios that I'm like, that will never happen. And they're like, Laura, it might happen. So let's be ready for it. Um, and that's my goal is to make sure that we're ready for that, um, that we can afford to pay for that. Um, and so that whatever happens, we can fight back and make sure that we protect the vote because that's what this is about. It's not just about winning at that point. It is about protecting this democracy. You know, Americans have been voting legally, carefully, safely through war, through, through everything. But through Trump, this is where we are right now. And yeah. of course, the best way to avoid the scary scenarios is to win big and for everyone win to get big. their ballots in. So everyone, That's exactly uh, right. everyone Everybody go vote. Everybody vote, win big. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you so much, Lavora Barnes, for joining uh, Pod Save America and good luck to you in these last uh, these last couple days and uh, let's flip Michigan back. My, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for paying attention to what's happening in Michigan. Thanks to LaVora Barnes for joining us today. And um, we will have another pod on Wednesday. Uh, Dan and I will do the pod on Wednesday. And then we will have our post-debate for the final debate. Ugh. Our post-debate pod with all four of us on Friday. Aren't you glad there weren't three in the end? <laughs> yes. So glad. so glad. Oh, my oh God. My. So yes. Too much stress. Terrible. I don't even want, I don't even want another one. <laughs> yeah. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Demetrio, Quinn Lewis, Brian Semmel, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week.